Hello and welcome to another episode of the Gaming Moguls podcast, the only podcast where we've never been paid for our opinion because, well, nobody's ever offered us anything. I'm your host tonight, Mark Teske, along with my esteemed co-host, Mr. Jacob Kloppenstein. Jake, how are you tonight? I am doing wonderfully, Mark. Thanks for asking. I am back in the country and I am feeling great. It's been a long time since the two of us have sat down together on microphone and BS'd about games. It has been far too long. Well, even in beyond that, it's been a long time since I've like played games. So it was every month um, I try to post the games I've played that month in our Board Game Geek Guild, guild number 3431, for those who are listening. And I posted, and I think I only played like six games this past month, which is, I think, the lowest it's ever been. And then you came and posted and made me look like a complete dick for playing zero games because you played a whole bunch (laughs) this past month. (laughs) I've had a good month of gaming. And yeah, your list was embarrassingly terse. Yeah, it was bad. And most of those games, too, were online. I would say the the lion's share of them were online. So it it was a weak month, Mark. Not proud of it. Well, uh, all things considered, being that you were off on your honeymoon, other games were played, I'm sure. Yes, we did. A, we had a great time in Thailand, but it feels good to be back. And also, I think you have a quick little update before we talk about the games we played this week, Mark. I do. You know, it's probably something you're going to hear quite a bit about in just about every episode that we release this summer. But a couple of uh, important announcements. First up, we have the Gaming Mogul store up right now on our website at GamingMoguls.com. Just click the store link at the top. Currently, we've got gaming mogul t-shirts for sale, and uh, they're lovely. Jake, has yours arrived yet? No, it should be coming in the mail, though, today or tomorrow, so I'm looking forward to actually wearing it. Ooh, they're very comfortable. I cannot wait. Very shortly, too, we're also going to be putting up things like uh, replacement dominant pieces for our PAX Premier 2, as well as uh, turn order selector chips for games like 18xx or Northern Pacific, or really any game where you got to randomize out and maintain a kind of not-once-around-the-table turn order. GamingMoguls.com and click the store link at the top. Also, we continue to move closer and closer to having plans pulled together for MogulCon coming up in the last weekend of September 2019. That's the uh, 25th through the 29th of September. And uh, Jake, you've spent a little time looking for locations. Yes, we are dialing in on a few. Um, It kind of depends on our thoughts on the size. So we should hopefully have an answer very soon. And all of that information we posted on our website and on Twitter. So if you don't follow us, follow us and you'll be very much inundated with information on MogulCon. We're making sure that we have great gaming space, great rooms, good access to transportation and good access to a nice selection of uh, food and drink right in the area. Absolutely. It's going to be a good time. I don't know why anybody would ever want to come because they have to hang out with us. But aside from that one small setback, it'll be a great weekend of gaming. All right. Well, what did you play this week, Mark? I know you've played probably too much to list here on our little podcast. We only have an hour, but um, why don't you talk about some of the ones you were able to play in my absence? Is this truly games I played this week? Uh, Games I've played since the last time we talked about games we've played. (laughs) Much, much, much better put. Okay, so. I got a chance to play a game that we've talked about a bunch of times. You wanted some changes made, and I got a chance to make those changes and test them out. Ooh. So am I a good game designer? Uh, you are. Hey. You are. And I have some thoughts on this. So one of my favorite games that I'm also weirdly good at is the game Twa by Sebastian Dujardin, Xavier Georges, Elaine Orban, and Alexander Roche from Pearl Games. This is one of my all-time favorite games, but Jake, you've always had an issue with it. What was that issue, Jake? So in the game of Twa, you are drafting dice and kind of doing that as like a Euro-style mechanism thing. But what's weird is it has hidden scoring, and there's like 
I think six or something options depending on the cards and everyone has a face down card, but everyone scores depending on everyone else's cards. So you have to suss out what other people's scoring cards are so you can figure it out. And so I've always said, why don't we just play with open hands? And I'm thinking that's what you tried here. So we did. Um, I got a chance to play last week with the Johns. We decided since one of them had never played it before that we were going to try playing with the hidden scoring things face up at the end of the game. So I explained the game. We all then dealt out the hidden scoring cards, explained what they all did and left them sitting face up by the side of the board. Normally in the game, those would be hidden and you would try to discern what somebody else had so that you could try to score as well as they did on whatever that hidden scoring thing was. There could be some level of bluffing involved with that, too, where you could make a point of keeping a few extra coins to lead somebody off the trail. No chance of that with them being face up. And it's interesting. Like the game was still great. I still love the game. And I don't think it either just yay, it fixed it or holy cow, it broke it. What it did do, though, I noticed is it noticed that it really amped up the level of AP in the last couple of rounds. Oh, really? I guess I wouldn't have thought that being a thing because every action then becomes hyper optimized because you know exactly what you're going for. But I guess on the counterpoint of that is, isn't that always the case? It's just more blatant because you really should know at the end what all the scoring things is or have a guess for what the scoring is. No, that's for sure. Um, If you know, if you've played it a lot, you should know what those things are and have a pretty good guess. But I guess maybe just the, you know, the tiniest bit of uncertainty keeps you from really augering into min maxing that last round. Got it. And when you know specifically what they are and what those levels are, the min-maxing got acute where you just think, okay, well, if I buy this dice and go across there, then I'm all, I can get the one more level here, but then I don't get the one more level over there. But that's worth four victory points instead of three over there. And those were calculations that just didn't occur before. Got it. Okay, interesting. But was it okay generally or aside from oh, yeah. the aside yeah, from yeah, the yeah. No, totally. Okay, cool. So I think... Ultimately, I think the right answer was that if you're playing with people who have never played it before and do not know the cards and are just trying to get the game down, it's probably better to play with an open face so that they can concentrate on really the beauty of the game and the dice drafting mechanism and uh, sort of all the nifty little combos you can do with that rather than having them worry about some obscure thing that they barely know. On the flip side, if you were in a case where you're people that, oh, yeah, that's my favorite game and I've played it 10 times. Like if I were playing with somebody with my equivalent skill level, I would 100 percent want to play face down. Right. That's the real game in it where you can actually try to bluff and stuff. But I always felt yeah. my times of playing, which we have played this game a few times and we played it very regularly for about a month and a half, maybe. So it was fresh in the mind and we still weren't bluffing with each other. At least I wasn't that 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 part of the strategy escaped me. I think I'm to the point now where I would want to start doing that. I did see some really interesting strategic ideas popped up in the conversation afterwards. I didn't try this. John was researching it a little bit afterwards. He was quite fascinated with the game. This isn't J-Mac. It's the other John. I think he saw this on Shut Up and Sit Down or something like that, where they talked about actually using some of your influence to flip your big dice to little dice so nobody buy them out from underneath you. And then at the end of the round, you use your influence to flip them back over to their big numbers and then spend them out on powerful actions. Oh, very cool. That's crazy next level thinking right there. Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's fun always hearing people describe mechanisms in a game that maybe you didn't see after first view or first glance. So it'll be interesting to try. I'd like to get Twa played again. I remember liking it and maybe playing with this new variant will make me like it a little bit more. Yep, we'll give it a whirl and see what you think about that. And you can get a chance to knock me off my perch. I'm uh, running about an 80% win rate on that game right now. So, oh, geez, I like it. Oh, geez, you're good at it. <laughs> Walking into a David versus Goliath situation. Brutal. <laughs>
Speaking of David versus Goliath, there's a game I didn't play this week for exactly that reason. Yeah, um, I was not the Goliath in this situation. So um, we were. No. Yeah, we, I definitely was not. But I was. Looking, we know who the Goliath yeah, is. Yeah, absolutely. So we were able to play Gaia Project by Jen Strogemuller and Helge Ostertag and published by Z-Man Games over here in the States. Just as a quick background, we've talked about Gaia Project a lot, so I won't bore people too much, but Gaia Project is a game very similar to Terra Mystica, where you are different space-faring civilizations trying to terraform the different planets in a solar system so you can live on them. Um, really, it's a very complicated, somewhat medium-heavy heavyweight Euro game, and it is an absolute darling in my eye. This past time we played, we were playing in a four-player game, and all of my family, my uncle and my cousin, got absolutely trounced, and myself, by Phil. And Phil absolutely destroyed us, and he did wonderfully. So, Phil, you're the best. Great job. I learned so much from watching you play. One thing I did notice while playing this game, which we've talked about at length, is the adage of why play the first turn if you can't lose it, which I believe is coined or termed to at least uh, the uh, splatter folk over at Splatter Spell and Games. Um, I don't actually know if they're the one who said it, but sure, I definitely saw some people very much made some issues with placing their first starting mines, and it completely had implications throughout the rest of the game, which was really cool because... I think there is an adage in a lot of your games where just like all starting points are pretty good. You'll figure it out through there. And it was neat to see how much I had made myself go into the corner and end up losing because of it. I still am really loving this game and I'm loving the flexibility of all the races. And I think there is six races in the game or six different colored player pieces and then double sided player boards for two different races per player piece. So I definitely want to try all of them. And this is becoming one of my favorite games. Absolutely love Gaia Project. So I need to uh, come up to speed on that one, and I need to come up to the speed not playing with you guys. So <laughs> this is a game that rewards people that have played it a lot, and that's a great part of the game and a great part of the design. But being that I've played it once, I realized that pretty much no matter what happens, I'm going to spend two, two, you know, two to three hours playing it, and I'm going fight to fight it out for third or fourth. And maybe I'd like to get a few reps in with people that also don't know what they're doing before I jump in. Although I guess I lose the ability to see somebody that's really good at it. It's interesting that you have this takeaway because you're giving people ammunition and not play 18xx games with us now because we're probably clocked in 100 18xx plays or near about there with online and in-person yeah, play. Yeah. And I really don't think the doobies are going to try with us. So I think you should back off that position, Mark, and try everything because losing is part of gaming, Mark. It's part of gaming. Uh, that's, that's true. I think a part of that though has to do with how often do you want to play this one? Like, sure. you know, if this is a game that I kind of only want to play a whole bunch this year, then I'm willing to invest in it. If it's a game, I just kind of want to try once every six months. Do I want to invest three hours into losing? I don't know. Right. And I am firmly in the first camp. I'm assuming you're in the second camp. I think I'd play this game almost every single game night if I could. That's how much I love it. Hmm. Yeah. 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 I think that's uh, probably accurately said. I'd like to play it. I don't need to play it every week. Got it. But yeah, that was that was Guy Project by Jen Strogemuller and Helga Ostertag and published by Z-Man Games. I am such a big fan. What else did you play while I was gone there, Mark? Speaking of 18xx, I had a Sunday alone with my son or weekend alone with my son as my daughter and wife were out of town. And he really he wanted to dive in and play a really long game and he wanted to play something really meaty. So I put a few options out on the table and the one that he picked was 18cz being that there's a two player mode in that one and. I thought, well, okay, he's played 18 Lilliput, so he knows sort of the broad strokes of playing 18xx, but, you know, this is the first time with a real 18xx, so I don't know, we got all weekend, what the heck, let's give it a whirl and see how it goes. 
That's coincidentally the first time I have played the two-player variant of 18CZ using Vaklav. And I wasn't sure how that was going to go. And it had actually been a very long time since I'd played 18CZ. So I was excited for that reason. And, you know, as a learning game, it went really well. I think he really mastered the concepts by the end and was making some reasonably good decisions, which is pretty good being that he's 12. I'm surprised. I didn't know you'd never played the two-player game. I'm actually looking on Board Game Geek right now to see if I've ever played CZ with you twice, two-player. Never have. I've only played with Tyler. Uh, I don't think I so. I played with Tyler, the two-player yeah. version, twice, and I've never played with you. We have played CZ together, but never the two-player. I think the only two-player 18xx I've played with you was Chesapeake. It is, and and that was okay, but I think CZ offers a completely different experience for a two-player game. And I think the reason for that is because you have this, it, it's not a pure robo-player, it's a robo-player that's jointly controlled by both of you. And you actually get to make decisions for the robo player. And depending on what position you're in in turn order depends on whether you make decisions on how you lay track or where you lay stations and so forth. And man, you can gank the other player by what you decide to do with that. So I made a point of staying in second place and I was getting a chance to lay stations. And Vaklov goes out and buys a whole bunch of trains by automatic. And I made a point of keeping Vaklov with one station so he couldn't run them because my son had invested heavily in buying Vaklov shares. Yeah, it's super neat how you can flip it. And then depending on the Vaklov, you can control certain aspects of Vaklov depending on your pole position, right? So if you're the second guy, Correct. I can't remember with which one, but there's different sized companies. And so you can really control it. Maybe you care more about one category of the map or one company more than you do the other bit. So you can ignore certain aspects and try to really game the other one. It's a really cool implementation of a two-player robo thing. What's also cool is Vaklov does have trains, and I think he starts moving faster than everybody else, right? He just starts with oh, trains. Oh, yeah. Early investment in Vaklov is really important because you can make a whole bunch of early money on that. And I noticed William was doing that. So that's why I was making a point of crippling Vaklov every way I could to keep him from just running away with getting extra money. Just kneecapping him. No, Vaklov, you're not yeah. doing anything. Oh, completely. Well, that's no, awesome. That's exactly what I was doing. That was a really interesting twist. Have you tried the Bohemian variant of the map yet? I also heard that's pretty good for new players. I haven't been able to piece it out yet, but I liked CZ. Hmm, I have not. It's a smaller board, I believe. It's on the backside of one of them, and it's apparently supposed to be a better learning game. I haven't really dug into it because I didn't need that to be that for me. CZ could definitely be the, the three different sized companies uh, game that it is, and I didn't really needed to do that. So I'd like to try it sometime, though. Sure. Well, you know what? Maybe that's a, uh, you know, Jake and I just by ourselves on a Wednesday night and have, you know, three hours or two hours or something like that. And we can see if we can accomplish that quicker than we can accomplish 18 Lilliput. Absolutely, because that's always my big complaint with 18 Lilliput. Well, I'm happy that uh, William's playing an <laughs> 18CZ. That's a full fat 18XX game. There's no lightness to that one whatsoever. Oh, yeah. And he and he enjoyed it full stop. I, he would definitely like to play another. How was the pacing of the two player game with him? Uh, not bad. It still took us a long time because there was a lot of rules explanation. And I think we actually ended up breaking it up over a couple of nights. Right. There's some things you have to consider. Right. Like especially with the miners, how you can buy them in and then sell them later. So that also is right. an implication. There's a few more layers on top of it than just kind of a regular 18xx game that can make it a little hard to internalize. Well, it's awesome. So it would actually be interesting if there was a uh, more vanilla or more 1830 style vanilla, maybe 1889 with a Vaklov added on to that would be an interesting thing. Yeah, I, I haven't 
looked into CZ in a while, or actually haven't opened up my box in a while, but I don't know what the Bohemian or Bavarian, it's Bohemian, I think, um, variant. Maybe it can have Voslov in uh, that Bohemian, Bohemian yeah. in that in that region. So maybe that'd be what we need to do. We just need to actually open up our boxes of the game and see what it has to offer. Yeah, Bavaria is in Germany. Bohemia is Czechoslovakia, which Got it. <laughs> makes for Czech Republic, which makes sense. Absolutely. With the name CZ. That's great, Mark. I'm happy. I'm happy we got another 18XXer in the world. That's 18CZ. Great play. Awesome. I was able to play two kind of quick games at Wednesday, kind of sandwiching in Gaia Project. The first one being Deep Sea Adventure by Jun Sasaki and Goro Sasaki and published by Oink Games. Deep Sea Adventure, we've talked about it a lot on the podcast. Uh, Listen to the Oink one if you want a very detailed description of it, but you're different divers diving down in a push-your-luck style game to try to get some treasure and bring it back up to your shared oxygen supply ship. And we played this one and people kept on arriving. So we started off originally as a two-player game, and then somebody showed up, and we explained the rules again, which took 30 seconds. Then another person came, so it became a four-player game, and we ended up playing it. And I forgot how fun this one is. It's kind of one of the... Oh, it's a great one. ...B-tier, in my honest opinion, Oink games, but it's just still such a fun little game to play as a filler kind of while-people-arrive game. And I haven't brought it in my game bag for a lot of that reason. It's kind of more of a family game for me, and I completely flipped on it. I need to bring it to game nights more often. So thanks, Phil, for suggesting that. I love Deep Sea Adventure. Yeah, it's a good yeah, one. It's, and it's, it, it occupies a very nostalgic little spot on my shelf, being that that's my very first oink. Yeah, and I think it was one of the first ones I played through you as well. It's a good one. Also, our good friend Craig, who was on last week's episode, sent me a note on the internet saying... Uh, has Mark 3D printed you an uh, insert for that game yet? And you have not to report to Craig. So get on that, Mark. We got people that need that 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 want me to have an insert for Deep Sea Adventure. To be brutally honest, my laser cutter has been, uh, you know, that meme on the internet of the guy uh, ignoring his girlfriend looking at the sexier one walking by. That's kind of been me, my laser printer and my 3D printer. Yeah, but well, so it's not being used, you know, just hit play and Jake will happily take the insert. It's easy. <laughs> I hope it still works. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. But yeah, that's Deep Sea Adventure by the Oink crew. Um, and then finally, we were in a position on Wednesday where everybody left, or two people in our group game group of four that were playing a Gaia Project had left, and we were stuck with two people. And you guys were off doing Doppel It's So Clever, which we'll talk about in a moment. I was kind of scraping for a two-player game, maybe talking about to play Arboretum, and I realized that I'd brought the game Caper by Keymaster Games and Unai Rubio to the game night. I talked about this game pretty recently as a game that I think you would like because the art is just so beautiful in it. And I ended up playing it and it's really grown on me. It had some issues. The rule book is really bad on it. And they kind of assume that you've played card style games before. Um, I remember flipping through the rules the first time and being like, is there not more to this? And there is a little bit of confusion and ambiguity with the rules in general, but I think it's a great little game. And the kind of cool thing about this is this two-player stealing style game. So you're different people trying to pull heists, different capers, if you will. And what's neat is you have two different phases that TikTok, whether or not you're playing robbers or you're gearing them up. And whenever you play a card, then your partner will play a card from their hand. And then you swap the remainder of your hands as if you're drafting. So it's really fun to set up different plays where you can play a certain card knowing what they're going to have and forcing all these things. It's an interesting back and forth that I don't see present in a lot of other games. So I like it. Caper's a fun one. 
Yeah, I finally got a chance to look at it. I didn't get a chance to play it, but I did get a chance to see the artwork on it. And uh, Team Fortress 2 would be the art style, I'd say, which I think is pretty cool. I can see why you say that, but I think a better description for it is Wes Anderson movies. It looks like a Wes Anderson movie sure, in cartoon sure. form, but it definitely is. It, it looks like Spies. So it, it makes sense that you think it was a Team Fortress 2, but I like it. It's a better game than I remember it being, and with more plays, it keeps on growing on me. If I would have originally said uh, what I thought about this game, like the first or second play, I'd say, eh, probably can go on my for trade pile, but it's really grown on me, and I think it, I think you're going to like it. Very cool, yeah. I'm up to try it. Like you mentioned, Dopolt So Clever was being played at the next table at the same time. And I hadn't played this one in a while because my original version was just a uh, kind of crappy print and play version. Like when it was first announced, the scorecards made its way onto Board Game Geek. I printed some and I kind of made do with whatever dice I had laying around. And it just really sort of never got played after the first couple times. Well, now that it's kind of generally available here in the States, I found a copy on sale and added that to my collection because I'm a big fan of both that and Ganshan Clever and decided it was time to play that that night. So I found out something crazy, Jake, that you've never played this. I've never played Doppelit. Doppelit. So Doppelit. Doppelt. Doppelt. That, that is how that word works. Um, I've never played that version of it. I have played the original Gans. But I've not played the, uh, the 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 second one, and I don't know if I'm that interested in playing it. You know, it's it's interesting. It's the same game at the end of the day, but it's the same game but completely different. Hmm. Still following me? Like at the end of the the core game, roll some dice, pick them, put the ones that are smaller than the one that you pick up onto the dish. At the end of the round, the passive players all pick one of the dice out of the dish. That's all exactly the same as Gonson Clever. But the way each color section works is completely different and kind of unique and interesting. Like the yellow section, you actually get to check each of those twice. The first time you make circles and then you get this special power up thing. And you don't actually score on any of them until you check them again a second time. And then it's by the number of them that you check. So you actually got to hit the numbers twice in order to get any points out of the yellow. How neat. The silver section, like anytime you take a number, any numbers lower than that, you score also on there. So, you you know, if you have like a silver six in the first round, you may want to pick that one and then mark off like five other spaces. Now, where that gets interesting is it combos with a new power-up that you get that allows you to take a dice back out of the dish and get that back to re-roll. The strategy is very different. I think it's a little thinkier than Ganshin Clever, and it's definitely harder to score high than it is in Ganshin Clever. Interesting. So I guess my apprehension to it is not from the fact that I think it's going to be a bad game. Is It's kind of one of those things where I would probably combine the boxes and just choose with whatever fancy I'm feeling at that point in time. So yep. if you were to say, oh, we're playing a shown clever and I just don't quite know what it is or I didn't hear you say the first word, I'd probably come over and sit down. I'm just not quite hunting down Doppelit or Doppelit, the, the other one. Yep, I think that's the play I'm going to make. I, I already laminated the scorecards on that. And it's just a matter of stuffing four scorecards and six more dice into that same box and you're good to go. Easy. Well, that's awesome. I'm happy you guys got to play it. What else did you play? You have a huge list, Mark. I have never seen this many <laughs> games that you've played in a, in quote unquote a week. So before we played that, we got a chance to pull out a game that I had acquired and trade here not so long ago by one of my favorite publishers, Pearl Games. That is Brussels 1893 by Etienne Esperman at Pearl Games. You can definitely see the Pearl Games DNA in that, both in the production and the art style. They kind of have a look about their games, and this one won't disappoint. What Brussels 1893 is, it's a game about the Art Nouveau period in Belgium. Doesn't that entice you to play a game, Jake? Oh, you don't have to say anything more. I'm already buying it on Amazon. 
So you produce art and then you increase your architecture skills and then you build buildings. At the end of the game, your score is more or less the, uh, you know, hey, did I build the most buildings and how good's my architect? Which puts it in pretty standard square Euro fare. And it is. But what's kind of cool about it is it has a, uh, I don't know, think, uh, think Feast for Odin style giant action selection board. And that gets laid out randomly every single time that you put it out there. At the beginning, you actually cordon off a portion of the board and say, okay, we're only actually playing with the lower right three by three sector this time around. We're not playing with the whole board. And then the next turn, whoever gets the first player gets to say, no, 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 we're going to play with the upper right four by two section instead of the lower right three by three section. So you can creatively take different actions in and out of that particular round. That by itself isn't that interesting. What is interesting is you get the opportunity to upgrade those different action spaces by building buildings on them. And if you built a building on there, you get to do a follow action when any of your opponents take that action. Oh. So, yeah. So if you're the first player, you then can basically say, hey, look, all of my buildings are in the upper left part of the board and all your buildings are in the lower right hand part of the board. So being that I'm first player, guess which part of the board is not getting selected. <laughs> the bottom right. <laughs> Got it. So that's neat. So it's it's almost like making a game out of the action of worker placement beyond using that as a action distribution thing. Yeah, precisely. Neat. Oh, cool. That was really nifty. And it was a it, it there was a few aha moments as you figured out how you could work that one and game that one. And as is typical, Steven stomped us hard by basically dominating and taking over all of the spaces to build buildings so that every single time one of us wanted to build a building, he earned as many victory points as he had buildings on the board, which by that point was a lot. Oh, got it. He was the mafia. He was the builder's mafia. <laughs> That's exactly right. So in the future, that was one of those things learned. Don't ever let somebody monopolize all of the building spaces because it's going to they're going to win. Got it. Well, the first time that I was aware of 1893 Brussels was I originally thought it was an 18xx game because most 18xx games have the 18xx moniker in it where it's 18 followed by two subsequent numbers describing the year in which some important action happened on the, the railway in that region of the world. And so I assumed it was Brussels and it was Brussels 18xx game, but it was not. And I've heard many a story on the internet or at least read them about someone buying uh, some <laughs> some uh, spouse or something along those lines, some, some well-intentioned individual buying someone a gift saying, hey, it's an 18xx game. It's 1893. And no, but I'm happy to hear there's a good game beyond my original thought of it being an 18xx game. Very nifty game. Um, I think the playtime's uh, somewhat in that sort of midweight, uh, you know, 90 minute euro. And uh, you know what? It plays five. Oh, which is also a big plus for our game because we often find ourselves with five people at our game nights. So a sub two hour game that plays five people has a lot of utility in our game group. So glad I have it. So that's Brussels 1893 by Etienne Espriman and Pearl Games. We're going to rate that a 3C on the mogul scale. And for those of you that haven't been following along since the beginning, Jake and I categorize the difficulty of games using what we call the mogul scale, which is a two-dimensional rating, where the first dimension, the number, is how rules-heavy it is. And the second dimension, the letter, is the strategic density of the game. So it's kind of mid-rules mid and mid-strategic density, where a lot of midweight euros fall. So, Jake, I think the last time I actually got a chance to game with you was over a month ago. Yeah, which is ridiculous. Cool thing was, though, I finally got to teach you a game I've just been in love with lately called Town Center. What'd you think of it, Jake? 
I really liked it. However, it was not set up in the right way because I, I was a little butthurt at the start of this game. We had just played A Feast for Odin, which we'll talk about later in the podcast. Don't worry. And that was something that you really were dying to play. And I was excited to play it, but it wasn't really within my wheelhouse. I could have taken it or leave it. So we had an hour and a half left and we had just played The Great Zimbabwe the week before. And I was like, yes, we're going to play it again in person. And it's, we, everybody knows how to play it. It'll be fast. It's a three player game. It'll take maybe an hour and a half. Perfect. Plenty of the amount of time. And then you whipped out and begged me with little uh, puppy eyes saying, can we please play Town Center? And I caved. And so I thought I wouldn't like it. I was a little butthurt at the start, but I really liked this game. I think I was also skeptical about the ability to get Zimbabwe played in an hour and a half. And I was skeptical about my desire to actually play the great Zimbabwe. So sorry for pushing you into playing Town Center, but I did think you'd really like it. So I guess thanks. Sorry, not sorry, maybe. I Yeah, so I definitely prefer Great Zimbabwe to it, if that's the question. But I think it's a neat game. I really like puzzly games. My main detraction for Town Center, which we've talked about in a couple of podcast episodes previous to this, if you haven't heard about it, is you're building little cities and they grow depending on certain conditions. Like if there's a business and there's not enough apartment blocks near it, apartment blocks will grow out of nowhere. I believe I'm remembering that correctly. I don't know if I'm using the right terminology, but... I couldn't super internalize all the steps of how those things would grow. And I don't think that's your fault. I just think it's the fact that it's a game that is representing cities with little cubes and it can only go so far with really internalizing the theme there. Yeah. And one thing I've found that's very challenging for everybody is the rules on how things grow are different depending on whether it is a commercial district or whether it's a residential district. And there is a difference between what is a cube and what is a block or what is a unit, I think. So some things grow based on how many units are nearby. Other things go by how many cubes are nearby. That's one of those that literally everybody asks every single time. Now, do commercial, that's how many that's how many units are next to it. Yeah, yeah, okay. Whereas it's with the residential, it's how many cubes are next to it. And that is more complex than it needs to be and causes confusion every single time. Yeah, and the... Other thing that just makes it so hard is so you think you're building a city, right? And I live in a city. I live, I live in an apartment. I live in like, I take an elevator, which is neat for suburbs people to get to my apartment. And so I'm thinking of everything in the realms of reality. But really, this game's super weird because you can have like residential on a tower and then you can have commercial, then you can have residential again. And then you'll have a power plant or something on top of that. It's very strange with the level of somewhat thematic integration, somewhat unthematic integration. So once that had been thrown aside from my brain, it kind of opened up for me and I realized how much I liked it. The one other bone to pick with you, Mark, beyond the Great Zimbabwe complaint was we set this game up and I think it took 20 minutes with Teach. It was super fast. And then you started boxing it up. And like, I remember looking at uh, Dennis, who was with us, and I'm like, what's he doing? Like, we can just play this again. And I think you like were about to say, like, what what else do you guys want to play? And we were both like, we could just play it again. <laughs> it was yeah, funny because with, like, oh, with oh, such okay, a hard thematic sure. game to, or pardon me, not thematic, such a hard like kind of system to wrestle with, I'd finally started to nail it down. And you were about to box it up. And I was like, no, Mark, we're going to play this again. I would have played it, I think, three more times if we had more time, just because I wanted to figure it out and see what was going on. And to be fair, I would have played it three more times, too. So good to know that. It was just weird. All of a sudden you start boxing up. I'm like, no, Mark, no, no, we're playing this again. It's a game that makes you feel smart, too, when you all of a sudden get everything together. And it takes a turn or two to get that when you all of a sudden figure out one cube placement that causes this huge cascade of growth through your city and that really magnifies your scoring. 
man, that feels good. That's really fun. Yeah. Once you actually realize how that works and you actually get that figured mm-hmm. out, which probably isn't going to happen in your first game. <laughs> but yeah, Town Center is neat. I think it's probably more of a puzzle than really like an optimization scoring style game. There is the drafting, which really you can screw over people by both the placing and drafting of cubes. But I, th- I, I was a fan, even though I had two bones to pick with you regarding it, the game ended up winning out. So that has to mean it is a bright star of a game. And to be fair, I don't know that you can compare this directly with Great oh, Zimbabwe. Yeah, They're not. two wildly different not. beasts. Of course. So yeah. <laughs> it's not I don't think we should ever make a this versus that comparison no, with these two of games. Of course not. It's just uh, if we had an hour and a half and we could play one, I wanted to play the Great Zimbabwe. And you you got your way, Mark. You, you get all the games played you want. Bah, there's no way we would have gotten in an hour and a half because I would have needed a half an hour rules explanation. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> so speaking of building cities and laying blocks, um, I had loaned you a game before I had moved so that you could uh, hold on to my things so I didn't have to move them. I see that you've played it with your family, which is great. Why don't you tell the folks what, uh, what, what game we're talking about here? So instead of building high-rise apartment buildings, we spent time building high-rise castles, specifically high-rise dragon castles. This is the Simon release by Halmar Hach, Luca Ricci, and Lorenzo Silver. It's really an offshoot of Mahjong. And Solitaire Mahjong. I've seen you play this game. Yeah, yeah. I've seen you play this game a bunch of times, and I never got a chance to actually play it when you had it over there. And eh, I was like playing Mahjong. So I wanted to try this out and just give it a whirl while you were on vacation. And... Man, I love this game. Yeah. It's well, I thought you would. <laughs> it's really fun. But before we get yeah, ahead of sure. ourselves, why don't we explain what we're doing in the game? So we are different castle owners who are going to the Dragon Castle. Hey, the name of the game to steal different bricks to build to which to build our own castle. But all the bricks are are little uh, symbols that are different mahjong suits. And then you have a handful of options on how you can take them. There's three different ones, but you're always going to be grabbing them and placing them in your own things. And depending on how you place them, once you get a contiguous set of four of them with the same symbol that are all orthogonally adjacent, they flip. And then you're going to score a certain amount of points for that. So you're taking these little mahjong tiles after a center tile, after a center constructed, I'd say, board. It kind of looks like a castle, depending on what configuration you choose to use. And then placing them on your board to build up a little castle with roofs and stuff. But what did the family think of it, Mark? I first played it with my son and daughter. And <laughs> my, my daughter really likes puzzly, logic-y games. I should probably try Town Center with her now that I think about it. The whole game through, she just kept saying, oh, I, I love when I find a game game. I love when I find a game that works just like my brain works. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, this game is just like how my brain works. Oh, I just and she proceeded to wipe the floor with us. It was obnoxious. Well, just it's how her brain works. That's awesome. Good job, Elizabeth. That drove my son absolutely crazy. Elizabeth, shut up. Right. <laughs> this is how my brain works. Elizabeth, shut up. So. As a result, William hated it. Elizabeth absolutely loved it. And when we played it again the second time with my wife, who also loved it, by the way, William wanted nothing to do with it. So he was off in his room. Elizabeth, Heather, and I all played it together. And funny thing happened. At the end of the game, Heather's like, oh, I really like that one. That's fun. I went, yeah, it's one I borrowed from Jake. And I got a, oh. Oh, sad. (laughs) Like you had gone out and hunted for this good game and you ended up not finding it. I do have a question for you, though. Mm -hmm. Did you end up playing with the spirits? We did. Yeah, both games. I have never played with the spirits. Oh, I would never not play with the spirits. I mean, it's it's one of those that doesn't make the game any more difficult. It's just a little extra magic power, variable power that you can get for one of them. 
And then the dragon at the end gives you an extra scoring condition. And actually, I got crushed by it in the second game by my daughter again because she was actually paying attention to that stupid scoring thing that I completely forgot about. Interesting. So what I thought was neat about the game is I've always thought about playing with the spirits of the dragon. Like the game still ends with the dragon, but that that's moot. I've never played with either of those special things. And I kept on saying, okay, when I get bored of it, I'll do that. And the game just kind of fit this perfect niche for me. And I never felt the need to do it. So I never actually warned you about it. So I'm interested to hear that you uh, you played with it. So I'm going to have to try it with the spirits, especially with the loving, yes. loving review of I would always play with the spirits. So, Oh, yeah. Seems no reason not to. I mean, it's the exact same game. It just gives you a special power that you can use once in a while. Got it. Cool. And how gorgeous is the production of it? Oh, the production is 10 out of 10. I mean, the tiles are weighty and beautifully chiseled and perfectly produced. I mean, it's it's produced by Simon and love Simon or hate them. They know how to make pretty plastic pieces beyond my only complaint with this is I wish it was enough tiles to be a full Mahjong set, even if you like kept them in a bag away from it, just because I'd like to be able to double dip and say, oh, cool, I can play Mahjong now. So random thought. I actually own a honest to God Chinese Mahjong set. We need to figure out how to play, actually play Chinese Mahjong sometime. I've always been curious what that's like. Well, it's just gin rummy, right? I think so. But you watch, but like you watch Chinese people playing it in the movies and it doesn't look anything like the computer game. I have no idea, Mark. We are going to get into a territory that we know nothing about and we're going to be theorizing. So we're going to have to, we're going to have to couch this conversation. (laughs) That's so much different than our normal conversation. (laughs) True. True. (laughs) Um, Yeah, we should definitely check it. And then the other thing is, I wonder how similar you could play Dragon Castle with a Mahjong set. Because I've heard it's always similar to Solitaire Mahjong. I've never played Solitaire Mahjong, so I don't know. Well, I've always understood Solitaire Mahjong is pretty much what the computer game Mahjong is. So those of us that were on Windows 95, yep, I know I'm old. Uh, (laughs) I've played thousands of games of Mahjong on the computer. Interesting. Cool. Well, I'm happy you liked Dragon Castle. And on the mogul scale, I think we agree on that one. It's a 2C. Yep. It's pretty quick to teach, pretty simple to understand. And, uh, you know, like many puzzly games, you can auger into the strategy and how you place your tiles and where you place them pretty hard. Absolutely. My final game that I was able to play in the last while since our last episode was, I think, one of the rarest games that I'm aware of. It is called The Legend of Wales by Hugh Aaron and Adabol. My sister did a study abroad semester over in the UK, and so I didn't get a chance to visit her even though I wanted to. And she ended up bringing me back a game. And so she walked into a game store. She said, my, my brother has all these games. They're the, they just look the exact same as everything else. Is there anything he's not going to have in the States? And so they gave her this. And on BGG, there is an official nine owners and four plays. So not the most well uh, prolifically loved game on the Board Game Geek community. And I think that's probably for good reason because it's not very good. <laughs> the art on it's very, uh, very charming, and it has traditional Welsh words for, I believe, different monsters and stuff, which is really cute. Oh boy! Um, but all it is <laughs> is it's a deck of different monsters, and every monster has four different traits. I can't remember off the top of my head, but it's like spookiness, strength, grossness, a handful of different monster style traits. And what you're going to do is you're going to play war with them. The traditional game or the, the the basic game is just legitimately playing war with them. And depending on what card comes up, you're going to determine which one of those four aspects you're going to compare. And then you play until one person has all the monsters. The other way to play is a way where you kind of set up a line and you choose your lineup kind of Pokemon style to have your one fight there, one and so on and so forth. 
until you kind of run out of uh, and and one person will win more than the other. It's really not good. I have no interest in playing it really again. Um, it was captivating in the way it looked, and I'm so thankful that my sister brought it back for me because it's a little piece of um, obscurity that not other people have. But I'd love to hear <laughs> if anybody really loves this game because <laughs> it wasn't much to it. I almost wish it was just a regular deck of cards because at least we'd be able to play other games with it. But if we were to give it a mogul scale, which I don't think it really deserves one, I think it's a 1A. We'll have to see if we want to put this on our website or not, maybe for obscurity's sake. There you go. Well, it's kind of flexing on all the rare game collectors, right? Right. Yeah. There's nine of these. Who wants it? Maybe that's what I should do. I should start like a huge expensive <laughs> thing, but I think it's still like available. We'll have to ask Craig if he can find it over in the UK, but not the best. Wouldn't recommend The Legend of Wales unless you're over there for some tourist reason. So what else did you get to play there, Mark? Just one more I want to talk about before we transition into our main topics of the day is I got a chance to play another time in our family campaign of Near and Far, which is designed by Ryan Lockett, published by Red Raven Games. And we're probably halfway through the the campaign that's in the book. So we're on like map number five or map number six right now. In fact, problem is it had been long enough since we played last time. We couldn't remember which the last one we did (laughs) was. So we may have skipped one. I'm not entirely sure, but... And you also don't want to go back in the book and just start reading stuff. Well, did I did we read that? I don't think so. So anyway, we think we're in the right place, but we don't know what we what we did this time. And the last couple of times we've played, we've been playing with the Amber Mines expansion, which I would never in a million years play this without the Amber Mines because it adds so much to the game. This time we added the magic module to it, which we had never added before. And what happens is you can actually gain magic points when you go to... I think it's that it's that one stupid kind of place where you just get bread and nothing else. Yeah. You also get magic there. And I think it's called the magic hut, actually. And um, when you get a certain amount of magic, you actually get spells. And these spells are things that you can use every so often to get a little just a little spiff where, you know, like maybe when you enter the mine, you will get a food or something like that. As you get farther up the track, you also get the chance to put down tents and you get additional spells that you can use throughout that. And Again, just a really cool additional thing on top of what's already a great game. Also, the best addition to that is the amber mine part instead of just that little mine in the right-hand corner because before it was just a way to just rush tents out there and just get a couple of coins, whereas now you're actually exploring this mine and laying cards out. You got to fight monsters every so often to keep going deeper into the mine. Brings that main far board into the near to a certain amount. Cool. Well, I'm excited to play this one. You were kind enough to 3D print me uh, insert for it. And I also backed the expansion, but I have a little bit of a shame to admit. I don't think I've ever played the expansion, Mark. No, I think last time we talked about this, you fessed up to that as well. And, you know, man, it's probably a case we just need to whip this out on either with our combined spouses or whip it out on uh, Wednesday night. Right, because every time I've played it in the last while, it's, I was I think the last time we played it, I probably said this in the last episode, too. Halfway through the game, we're like, why don't we play this more? This is great. It's quick. It's fun. It's got a little bit of storytelling, but not too much. It's it's a fun little game. I will warn you of one thing, though. If we do end up playing this with spouses, make sure my wife is not involved. We were looking at board game geek win streaks and stuff like that and who scored, who who won an unusual number of any game. And like I said before, I've won an unusual number of games of Trois. She is six for six in games of near and far. Ooh, that is good. So, she is a, a shark. You can argue whether this is a game or not, but if whatever the case is, she's got it figured out that nobody can beat her. Got it. Well, that's awesome. That's near and far by Ryan Lucat and Red Raven Games. So speaking of games we have and have not played, Jake and I were looking at uh, the board game geek 
top 100 and looking at games we've played out of that. And we realized that uh, we've kind of played a lot of them, but there's some weird omissions in there. And we thought we'd take a few minutes and just talk about a few of the glaring omissions in the top 50 that neither Jake and I have played. Got it. So why don't you start with your list because it's bigger than mine and and we can shame you because I've played more of what the zeitgeist that is Board Game Geek has decided are good games. So let's let's start off and shame you here, Mark. Exactly. So I'm going to work my way from the bottom up of the games that I have not played other the top 50. And I'm not going to talk at length about really most of them. I'm probably just going to comment on a couple of them as to why I haven't seen them yet. And I'm also going to comment on the ones that I actually would really like to play. <laughs> specifically why. So the lowest ranked one in the top 50 I haven't played is number 50, Race for the Galaxy, the Tom Lehman masterpiece. Which is such a travesty. I have no idea I've even played this game. I I know. No, it just it's just never happened. I really want to play this game. That's probably the one in the top 50 I want to play the most. Okay. after the show, what you're going to do is you're going to go on iPad on on the little Apple store and you're going to search Race with the Galaxy because it's a really good app. And I'm going to pay for you the amount that's an app. I'm going to Venmo you that. Boom. And you are going to play it because then you can catch up with us because we've gotten pretty good and we can play anytime you want. It is so good. I think I've played. I've said this a million times. I've probably played Race with the Galaxy more than any other game. If you include online solo plays against computers, I have played it. Yeah. Hours and hours and hours. You would love it, too. I know. Oh, I've, I've played Roll a bunch, and I love it. I've just never played Race, so there All you right. go. Well, you're getting a gift at the end of the podcast. Nice. And, uh, what did I get in Thailand gift? You got this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, next up, apparently the lore, the last five is a, a buzzsaw of games I haven't played. Number 49, Keyflower. Never played that one. Number 48, Anachrony. That's also very high on my list of games I'd like to play because it's a compelling, interesting design that kind of messes around with time. And I know you own a copy of that. So again, no excuse. Yeah, I did just get an insert for it as well. So let's get it played. That's, That's on me. I will bring it sometime. Sounds great. Also, number 45, Android Netrunner, which you highlighted as a game you really want me to learn. Jake, sell me. So it's by Richard. You, you Magic is one of your favorite gaming experiences in your life, right? Mm-hmm. One of your true gaming loves. You don't actively pursue it anymore, but this is by the same designer, by Richard Garfield, and it is very, very, very good. It's an asynchronous collectible, or it's not collectible, living card game. So you get to either be the company or you could be the hacker, and it is neat. I will teach you this to you sometime and you'll probably like it. It's fun. And what's also cool about it being technically done now from Fantasy Flight, so you could probably hop on and get a complete full set for not that much money. That is an interesting angle on it because I, I love the theme. I've never really fallen down the LCG rabbit hole, so I don't know what to think about that. But certainly theme wise of all the LCGs, that'd be number one on themes I'd be interested in. Absolutely. And it's a great game to boot. It's not just a thematic kind of a storytelling shenanigans game. It is really good. That's Android Netrunner. So then uh, number 43, Marco Polo. Don't even know anybody that owns that. Number 42, Wingspan. I know several people that have owned it. It just hasn't come up. So I will have a chance to play that sometime in the near future, I'm sure. Number 41, Robinson Crusoe. That got played a whole bunch like the very first couple times I started hanging out with our Wednesday night game group. And for whatever reason, I just wasn't in the game. Number 37, Zulking the Mayan Calendar. That has been suggested to me more times for a game that I've never actually played. <laughs> I have no excuse right. for not playing it. <laughs> well, me too. It's just, I, I see the gears too. It's kind of posted every once in a while on Reddit where some guy's like, oh, I painted the gears and Sulkin. It looks great now. It's amazing that neither of us, oh, sorry, spoiler, have played that game. 
You know what? That is in that broad category of games that came out about 10 years ago that we just sort of missed. Yeah, it might have been seven, but I think it was like 2010, 2011 ish when that game came out. And we just I just wasn't that into games at that point. in nope. time. I had newborn children then and just wasn't really collecting games. So that's my only excuse. Number 33, Kingdom Death Monster. Amazing accomplishment. Not my jam. Number 31, Pandemic Legacy Season 2. I only got through March of Season 1, so why on earth would I play Season (laughs) 2? Number 30, Blood Rage. I know this is popular with a lot of people. I'm just not the world's biggest Eric Lang fan. So there you go. I I almost highlighted this one because I have a copy and I like my copy. I like owning the game. It's a good one. I think it might trigger the Mark Teske butthurt area control aspect of it. (laughs) Yep. I haven't really tried to pitch it to you. Uh, number 27, Mansions of Madness. I'd actually like to try this one. Full stop. Number 24, Mage Knight. Eh, I have a hard time getting Gloomhaven played, but, you know, I like Vladich of Adel, so sure, Mage Knight. Why not? Number 20, Arkham Horror the Card Game. File under haven't played LCGs, but this is a favorite of yours, right, Jake? Yeah, so it's weird because it this game is something I've liked, but I haven't ever reached for it since. I had a phase in my life when I liked it, and I was playing it solo, and it has some awesome aspects of it. There's deck construction, the art looks great, the presentation's fun, the writing is, from at least what I saw, it was okay, and it's wicked difficult. I think this could be a good game for your family when they get a little older and your daughter's not as scared by certain things, because it's a little graphic, so... Sure. I don't know if she'd quite like that when she she has been spooked out about other games before. Sounds great. Now we're getting into the top 20 and there's much less in here. I've done pretty good in the top 20. You certainly have. Number 16, The Seventh Continent. Uh, Don't really have time for a big campaign game. Number 15, Spirit Island, file under co-ops. Yeah, even though we've been told about a million times to play this game, which maybe we should buck up and do it. But I don't know. Yeah, it's just not interesting, right? The activation energy is too high. I've seen some opinions kind of sour on it recently as well, too. So Uh, number 12, War of the Rings, second edition. Do you know anybody that even owns this, Jake? I don't No, Not at all. Yeah, it's on the shelf at Fantasy Flight. So I guess if we really wanted to. But I think this is like a six hour cruise, isn't it? Yeah, it's two player. I think, too. I just I don't like I I don't want to out myself like this. I don't like Lord of the Rings. (laughs) I know I've I've waited a long time to tell you this. It's actually one of the main reasons I don't really like playing D and D anymore. I'm just so bored by fantasy. Just, ugh, it's just boring. (laughs) And maybe the original stuff is less boring to me, but I just, I don't, I don't care. It's kind of the same reason with star Wars. Like star Wars is fine, but like, it's not interesting for me to try to play star Wars in a game. And so it's the same thing with Lord of the Rings. I have, I have upset probably half of our listener base by that. I've never told you that. No, you haven't. That, that That is new information for you. You have a you have a Lord of the Rings pinball machine. You keep on showing it to me. I'm like, oh, that's neat. <laughs> you know, I never play that one. I like the other ones more. I like Lord of the Rings, but I, you know, I, you're not offending me by saying that. Gotcha. Good. Well, I've right. never read the books. I've just I like the movies and I like the pinball machine. But beyond that, I don't care. Got it. We're outing ourselves. Are we even true geeks, Mark? Uh, maybe not. And Star Wars, I definitely don't care that much about. Oops, I said that out loud. Oh, we're going to lose a lot of fans. This is just the, the, the hot takes portion of the podcast here, Mark. Yep. Number nine, then Twilight Imperium, fourth edition. I think J-Mac has a copy of that, maybe. I would kill to schedule like a big day for this, like a big Saturday or Sunday somewhere. And we all like get really thematic and get into it almost like it's role playing. Like we know who we're going to be so we can dress. If you're the lion, people wear like a bunch of red <laughs> 
<laughs> stuff. I think it'd be super fun to have that be the kind of day. It's going to be a whole thing. I, I'm in. I've never been able to. I've signed up for this game at conventions a lot, and I've never been able to get a chance. Yeah, that sounds fun. And then finally, my top rated game that I've never played, which you guys have played it, and I wasn't there that night. And I have tried to play it on my iPad and thought it was really cool but never got through the whole game, is number three, Through the Ages, A New Story of Civilization. I really want to play this one full stop. Uh, we just got to do it. It's on John. Bring it out. I'd love to play it again. It was a sweet game. It was so cool. Yep. I did notice you and I have quite a bit of crossover in our list. So rather than you going through your entire list, why don't you uh, just talk about the ones that are different maybe and or the ones that you want to call out? Yeah, there's a couple that I, there's one that you have played that I haven't. And that is Max versus Minions. Just for the listeners at home, though, Mark has 19 unplayed games of the top 50. I only have 10, so I am nine points better than you for those those keeping track at home. Weird flex there, Jake. Weird flex. I know. I know. Well, for a while, I didn't. I, I thought that all the games in the top BGG 100 were all be good games, and that is not always the case. But yeah, one of them being that you've played that I have not is Mechs versus Minions, and it's a co-op game I'm not really that interested in. And then the other two being, I'm very interested in Keyflower. I would like to play that one. And Zulkin, the Mayan calendar. If you ever want to see our list, why don't we just make a quick little blog post with what we haven't played in the top 50 and see if we can get people to start shouting at us to uh, play certain games. <laughs> about how wrong we are about this. Gamingmoguls.com. You'll find it right there on, under the blog section. Absolutely. So now after our moose-boosh, why don't, in, in our feast of an episode, why don't we talk about the main course here, Mark? Fantastic. So we don't do reviews. This is an opinion piece. Okay, got it? Not a review, opinion yes. piece. We have not played it enough to quantify it as a review, but these are our opinions right now. Yes. So let's go for it. We're talking about the Norwegians expansion for A Feast for Odin. I have played it now twice. Jake, you have played it once? Once, yes. Okay. I most certainly have. So as a background, A Feast for Odin has the highest play count for me personally of any kind of big box, heavyweight, long form game. I've played it or the Norwegians 18 times at this point, which is a lot for me. That's huge. I didn't know you'd played it that much. When are you playing this game? Everybody I know except for you loves the game. Oops, spoiler. Everybody but you loves this game, so I actually get it requested kind of a lot. Wow. Wow. <laughs> You'll get the full take. It's more nuanced than, yeah. than Jake does not love it. We'll, we'll, we'll get that. Okay. Yeah. You've played it 18 times. Jeez. But having played it a lot, I've I've had a chance to form an opinion or three on the topic. And what I have noticed is a lot of the Feast for Odin games kind of end up coming off a little bit samey, like kind of get a person or two doing some raiding and you get a person or two doing some whaling and you get a person or two kind of floundering around doing whatever else isn't getting taken. And then there's a mass rush for emigration at the end and somebody races and grabs Iceland. And that's pretty much how every single Feast for Odin game goes down. Got it. Right. Got it. Wait, before everybody pauses the podcast and searches A Feast for Odin, why don't we give a quick background on what the game actually is at just the game level? Cool. A Feast for Odin is Uwe Rosenberg's latest huge box game that's uh, eh, kind of ostensibly spiritually linked downwards from all of his other games. I mean, you can kind of feel the development process in every other Uwe Rosenberg game. But it's the idea is that you're a group of Vikings trying to survive. And you're surviving in the way that Vikings do. You go out and you plunder and you go whaling and you go hunting and you craft things and right. you explore new islands and then eventually you emigrate to lands unknown. Right. And you do this through this big crazy board of like 63 action placement steps. 
that allow you to do gradually more powerful versions of them, depending on how many Vikings you commit to each action. Yes, which I find the most interesting part of the game is there's all the actions are categorized by there's both a column and then there's kind of like a section to which you are in, like there's a crafting section. And so depending on how many columns over you go is how many Vikings you need to contribute to it to get the power. So not all the actions are even. And everybody has the same number of Vikings on every turn. And each turn you get another one. They start breeding. And certain times you'll pass out real early because you did two big four-person actions. But those four-person actions are really good. And certain other people are waiting and kind of just doing one Viking actions and kind of bottom feeding and going and having their turns take way longer than the other people. Where that becomes important is whoever placed the last Viking actually gets the first player marker for the next round. And given that some of these action placement spots are red hot... A lot of times you really want to be first player. So why don't we continue with kind of what Norwegians aim to fix before a quick little side note into what the game's actually about. Yeah, for sure. It's an interesting expansion in that it isn't really an expansion. It's more like we refined the game and made a more perfect version of A Feast for Odin. Like it doesn't really add anything dramatically new to the game. It just sort of gives you more options to do and more viable strategies and balances things out more so that different players can go in different directions and not everybody's fighting for the same three things. I would absolutely agree with that. If you were to not tell someone that the expansion was there, they wouldn't know. No. Like normally with other games, you'd like look at it and it's like, oh, there's this weird other board that you're placing actions on or something. It comes with a brand new board for all the action slots. Everything just fit in completely well. Yeah. And the nice part about that is they had the chance to clean up a lot of the iconography. Things that weren't immediately clear in earlier versions now become a lot clearer because they've cleaned up the graphic language quite a bit. So it, in a lot of ways, even without the new stuff, becomes an easier version of it to play. Most certainly. A lot of expansions, you end up having to teach it where you teach the game. And then once you're done teaching the game, then you stop and you got to teach the expansion. This is a game that because it replaces full chunks of the other game, you really can just teach this as the Norwegians and take off and play without having this big, okay, that's the game. Now I'm going to teach you how to play the expansion. You don't have to do that. There's a couple of things you do have to retrofit in there. But for the most part, you can teach it just as the expansion. And that's how you're playing A Feast for Odin. I would completely concur because I did need a full teach to the game and it went completely well. I have played this game before the Norwegians more than once. But it's been a while, right? Yeah, it's been a, it's been a while. I think I have four or five plays of this in total, both Feast and Feast plus Norwegians. So I'm going to uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk a little bit about what this adds to the game besides just polishing out a few little details that needed polishing. And I'm going to sort of rank these from bottom up on the things that are sort of the, eh, hey, that's nice to, uh, ooh, that really makes the game a lot cooler. Sound like a good way to handle it? I think that's great. Cool. So one thing it does is it gives you an artisan shed right at the beginning that is very crafted around a specific strategy. Like it may be around having cows or sheep. It may be around hunting or something like that. And you get points and allow you to complete your building by committing some of those things to that building permanently. Jake, what'd you think of the artisan sheds? So this is your least favorite thing about the expansion here. That is a travesty. This is actually one of my favorite things about this game or the expansion, because my whole complaint about Feast is every single time I play, I do the exact same thing and I hate it. I always go raiding and I always win with raiding and it's stupid. This is one of those things. It's kind of like the uh, the skinniest sumo wrestler, right? I mean, my least favorite thing is still pretty cool. Gotcha. It is. It is a very cool thing. <laughs> so I, I, I th- this is probably my favorite thing from the new expansion. OK. 
Yeah, honestly, there isn't a part of this that I think is really superfluous. And ah, I don't I don't That's dumb. I don't know why you'd ever you do that. You don't need to play with that. Yeah, it's, right. it's, it's all it's all good. It all comes together to make the Norwegians. It's all good. The wonderful expansion. One thing I felt that was pretty weak in the base game was animal husbandry, like eh, raising sheep and cows really didn't make or break in. In fact, if you just went hard on sheep or cows, you're probably going to lose because it's objectively not as strong as raiding or whaling. But in the Norwegians, now they add horses and pigs to the mix and they work a little different. Horses are worth a lot. I mean, like a, a horse is worth eight victory points or something. It's worth a lot of points. Also, pigs are interesting in that they breed every turn. They don't have this TikTok of pregnant pig, baby pig, pregnant pig. You know, you just get a new pig every turn so they can multiply like mad. And like the other animals, they can be upgraded into clothing and whatever finished products they turn into. And man, I've won with this one just being a horse breeder and, you know, a couple other things, too. But horses are pretty strong. Awesome. A third weakness was that. The original game has occupation cards that try pushing you in a direction, but the challenge is some of those occupation cards are ridiculously situational. So you have this card and it's like, well, I'm never going to play this because that's never going to come up. (laughs) It wants you to have like four things of milk and I don't have any cows, so I'm never getting milk. What you can do now is you can actually turn in those occupation cards for victory point tokens. And it's a little bit of a race. Like there's like one four point token and two three point tokens and a bunch of two point tokens. So there's an incentive to turn those things in to get actual victory points as quick as you can. If it's something you're not going to use, that really makes those occupation cards a lot more interesting and powerful. The next thing it adds is it adds more islands, like four more islands that It doesn't really add anything horribly useful to the game other than the fact that it now pays out the new currency things that are in there. So there are new animals, there are new goods that you can get, and the new islands actually have those as the bonuses that you can get. And there's some interesting little tweaks about rivers through them where you can have multiple income tracks. And always nice to have more selections than just having Iceland for the island that you pick. Yeah, it's the good one. So I'm a big fan of the island strategy in the game because the one of the first times I played... We played with Kirk and Kirk was like, I have no idea how anybody would be able to even get that island and be able to fill it up. You're just going to lose so many points. And ever since he said that, I'm like, oh, God, they've just been these like weird coveted islands that I could finally make it to. So now pretty much every time I try to play, I try to get an island. And it's it. They're having more options is always good, I think, with the islands here. Yeah, I think islands actually in this version are become even more important that it's you, you need to have an island strategy going on to be competitive. Got it. Another thing it does is it actually dramatically decreases the number of emigration options that you have. Like there is only really one spot there. So now if you're planning on emigrating and moving your guys out and getting those big victory points, you got to be a little more aggressive about it because there's a limited number of spots to do that. And oh, by the way, it gets rid of the copy spaces at the bottom. So you can't just duplicate that spot anymore. Interesting. So I will say as someone who is uh, who's relatives and the ancestors are all Scandinavian, even though my last name is Klopfenstein and living in Minnesota. It does make me sad to say this, but I think less immigration from that neck of the woods to other places is good. Yeah. And the fact that just everybody would do that at the end of the game and that just kind of became the strategy. And it's just like, okay, so when's everybody going to turn on the jets to try to get out of here and emigrate all their people out? Right. Now, what it does is it does actually add a small immigration. So there's a there's a space where you can actually, instead of blocking up two spaces on your feast table with a boat, you get a single space, which is worth less points. And there's also ways to emigrate with your whale boats now to get to like close places. Yeah, neat. Less options, but more flexibility. Maybe that's the way to put it. 
And then finally, probably the biggest noticeable change is that it changes the board. It gives you better options for different player counts. Like you you get completely different boards for that, that you can flip over that just straight up eliminate some of the spots. But what it does is it adds a fifth column in there that you can take at any time and you can play one or two Vikings on there. But when you take that option, you're done with the round, even if you have multiple Vikings left. And some of those spots are pretty powerful. So there's an incentive to grab some of those quick, knowing that that is actually going to be your last lay for the turn. Also getting you first player, perhaps. Right. Well, then it also goes to the other point of if you're playing big, like the big actions, maybe you're going to have a chance to go there quicker because you're going to be down to one or two Vikings more quickly than other people will be who are doing one and two person actions. Yeah. And it also avoids a common pitfall of the first version that you would often be stuck with one Viking left and absolutely nothing different to do. Well, I guess I'll trade a flax in for two fish or something like that. You know, there was there's right. often a time where you just didn't have anything interesting to do with one Viking. And now you can go over and do those larger ones if it's your last action and get something good for that one Viking left. Yeah, I really liked this edition. This was probably my my other thing I really liked here in the in the expansion. And it was probably the thing that if you did play a decent amount of Feast Road, you'd definitely feel the most taken aback by. But it's it's really cool. It's it really rounds out the game for sure. So anyway, that's what a Feast for Odin, the Norwegians bring to the game. So, Jake, ultimately, what'd you think of A Feast for Odin, the Norwegians? So this might get a little ranty here because I thought I was really excited about the Norwegians. You'd brought it for a while, and I want the listeners to know that this was not me pumping the brakes on playing the Norwegians. It was literally a case of we thought we'd have four. This is perfect. This is the perfect time to play the Norwegians, and then there'd be five people there. It was it was natural causes, not me poo-pooing it. And I was excited to try it because I wasn't the biggest fan of A Feast for Odin. I thought it was a big bloated game and a big aspect of the game that we didn't explain is there's a bunch of polyominoes, which apparently I've been pronouncing uh, incorrectly. I've been saying that in polynomial in the same breath. So I apologize to the listener out there who pointed that out to me. I do know what both of those things are. I mean, the little Tetris style pieces, you're taking those and they're different resources on the board. And then you can use these to cover up certain places on your own board or islands that you can acquire. And maybe this is too much to explain for the podcast, but that's a cool thing. And it's a fun puzzle for people to slot these in in certain rules. And there's all these things that apply with it. And you get certain benefits if you leave certain spots open. And there's all these little gotcha little rules on it. I didn't like that. I don't think it's a bad thing. Like, I don't hate it, but it's not something I enjoy. So that part of the game is just lost on me. It's just, I feel like I'm holding down the game and everybody's waiting on me to place and really optimize these little placements. So nothing that I'm doing there is I'm not performing to my best. And so I feel like I'm holding up the whole game and it just became some aspect of it that I just gloss over and I wouldn't really enjoy. With that, I was hoping that this would be a better aspect to it and this would kind of help get me over that. And still, regrettably, even with the Norwegians making it a better game, I'm still pretty lukewarm on this game. I can understand why people like it, and I do not fault anyone for liking it. I think it's a pretty good game. It's just really not for me. There are certain games I will go to my deathbed saying are bad. This is not one of them. It's just not something I'm dying to play. What's your thoughts, Mark? I think they're very different than mine. Yeah, I'm a big fan of A Feast for Odin. Um, Judging by the number of times I've played it, I've played that as many times as probably the next five big heavy games combined. So I have a lot of experience playing it, and I, I really like it, and We'll play it kind of anytime, any place. And to quote my daughter, it's kind of how my brain works. 
So that's funny. I, I'm really good at doing that polyomino game and placing things and get maximizing that and getting benefit from it. So, you know, that part of the game is really fun for me. I like the different strategies and the different selections and the different options you can do. And the additional variation that the Norwegians brings to the table is a huge bonus to the game, I think, and is going to give that game a lot more legs going forward for me because doesn't really make it tougher to teach and it adds a lot more strategic possibilities and balances the game out so for me i am never not going to play with the norwegians going forward i mean that's just going to be a feast for odin for me it wouldn't surprise me if in a year or two we look back and we say i've now got 30 plays of this in because this is a game that i quite enjoy playing and will play quite a bit so i think it kind of comes down to that if you're a fan of a feast for odin this definitely makes it better but I think you could also continue playing it the way you have been and like it all the same and be perfectly happy. So that's my feelings on A Feast for Odin, the Norwegians. So one thing, Jake, we absolutely need to do is we got to rate this baby on the mogul scale. Where are we at? I think we'd both agree it's like a light 4D. It's not the most rules complicated, but there's a lot of stuff to do. And you do have to consult that little chart to figure out what the certain cards do. There are a lot of a lot more strategies that have been brought into play as a result of the Norwegians. So I think that uh, ups the complexity enough to make it a solid D. So we're rating this one a 4D. Definitely more of a journey than a standard midweight euro. Well, that's awesome. I'm so happy we got to finally play it with the expansion for you. Um, regrettably, I don't think you should ask me to play again in a while. I don't dislike the game, but it's just it's it lives in my land for me. I'd probably rather play something else. I would say that your sentiments are not shared by, well, pretty much everybody else in the game. Group, I know. So. Am I a hipster? <laughs> I don't know. I'm the guy who's rejecting it. Everybody loves it. I didn't know you played it 18 times. Everybody else wants to play it pretty bad. I know. I'll just be over by myself playing uh, like Leaving Earth or something. So anywho, well, I think we got to wrap this thing up. We're probably running too long. This has been a great episode. It's been a while since we've recorded one of these. It does feel good to be back in the seat, Mark, and just chatting with you about games. I didn't realize how much I missed this. For sure. And I think we decided that given the summer and now that we're back in the saddle, we're going to kind of double down on episodes. So expect some fairly frequent episodes the rest of the summer. Awesome. Well, that's so great. Thanks, everybody, for listening to The Gaming Moguls. For Jake and I, good night, everybody. This has been The Gaming Moguls Podcast co-hosted by Mark Teske and Jake Klopfenstein. Please find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn. Feel free to join our Board Game Geek Guild, guild number 3431. Find us on Instagram and Twitter, at GamingMoguls. Or reach us via email, jake at GamingMoguls.com or mark at GamingMoguls.com. If you like the Gaming Moguls podcast, please tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Clutch. Clutch.